you uh, notice in your bulletin, you'll see our new board structure, but Jason is currently serving now as our board chair for this year, and so and he has been doing a wonderful job. I've really enjoyed it, So, and I just really enjoy having these men up here praying for us every Sunday. Amen. Isn't that a blessing? To see godly men living out their godly calling. Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them. I hope you have them. If you don't have one, there should be one in the chair in front of you, a hard black back blue one, uh, and you can follow along in there. Some of the scriptures will be on the screen, but our main text will not be. So uh, use your phone, use a physical Bible, whatever you desire. But we're going through the Psalms in the summer. We're taking a break from Corinthians. We'll be back in that in the fall. But we're heading into the Psalms, and we're halfway through or so, and it's just been a blessing. The Psalms contain the entire Bible. John Calvin said that about the Psalms, that it encapsulates the entire Bible. And and as Dean and I were talking today, he even said it's the emotions of the Bible, and I really enjoyed that. It gives us language, heavenly language for our pain, for our suffering, for our hurts, for our questions of why, why, O Lord, are you doing this? And I don't know if you picked up on the theme from our songs, and not that we planned this to happen to Dean and Lorenda, but even Dean and Lorenda's um, situation ties so fittingly into Psalm 6. But it also ties so fittingly into your life, because we have all suffered in our lives. Psalm 6 is a very relevant and clear psalm for anyone who has suffered. And many of you in this room, I'm sure by now, have suffered. Or maybe you're currently suffering. And if you haven't suffered, just give it some time. (laughs) You will. It's just a natural part of being human, unfortunately, after the fall. It's just this side of the fall that we live in a broken world with broken systems, with broken people. And broken people hurt people. In the church, we're no better at times. We're just a bunch of sanctified broken people that hurt people sometimes. And it's not an excuse. We shouldn't do that. But we are the hospital for the broken. And may we never forget that. Amen. And this psalm gives us a pattern for us as Christians on how to face and how to respond to, to difficulties and suffering and trials within our life. That it's working out a peculiar glory for you in eternity and it's maturing and forming and shaping and sanctifying you in this life. And it's bringing you all the way to glorification when there will be no more suffering, when there will be no more pain or hurt, when Jesus himself will personally wipe away every tear from your eyes. Who's waiting for that day? Amen? Amen. During my study, when I was studying this last week, I, I, wrote, I, I, I write a sermon a week ahead. So I was writing this last week, and, and I, am, I was studying on how they test metals. Last week when I preached, we talked about how they refine metals, but I was looking at how do they test metals, and I came across when, uh, when uh, engineers are testing the strength of a stainless steel rod. Now, they're not testing the bend, uh, how much pressure it takes to bend, because that's quite easy. They actually put it in a machine, 
and they pull it from each end, kind of like how you've never seen like how taffy's made. You know, you pull the taffy and you, and you stretch it around. This is what they were doing with this stainless steel rod, and they put it in, and they were testing to see where it would start to pull apart, and then once they got to where it started to stretch, they would then test that same pull to failure. Okay, we got it to stretch. Now how much more pressure until it breaks in half? And at first, when I was watching this, it seemed like the, the rod was indestructible. But then out of nowhere, you see the middle kind of dimple like an hourglass, and it breaks. And in the same way, God tests his people like an engineer tests his materials. Now, God won't test you to failure, but he will bring you to your breaking point at times. Just think of the test that Abraham had. It was one of the most grueling tests that any man, I, I would say in the history other than Jesus Christ, had to endure. Genesis 22, 1-2 says this. It helps if I turn it on. Here we go. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. Imagine that. Imagine God Almighty coming to you and saying that. Imagine the agony that Abraham felt as he ascended that mountain with his knife hidden and ready. Imagine the agony. Thankfully, God didn't allow him to go through with it because it was a test. He says to him in verse 12, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know you fear God. What was the test? Now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's actually a foreshadow of Jesus. God stretches all his children to train us, to mature us, to grow us, and to use us more effectively. And we should delight in this. I know that sounds weird, but the brother of Jesus, James, he says this in his letter. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. Well, that sounds weird. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it has its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's the purpose of testing. That's the purpose of trials and hardships in our lives. This man by the name Yusuf, he was a pastor. I've tried to pronounce his last name 300 times, and I'm not going to offend him by saying it wrong. But he was an Iranian pastor who was freed back in September 8th on 20, in 2012. He was sentenced to death for preaching the gospel in Iran. He was released. He didn't die. But this is what he wrote back to his congregation. He said, indeed, I have been put to the test, the test of faith which is according to scriptures more precious than perishable gold. The Lord has wonderfully provided through the trial, allowing me to face the challenges that were in front of me. As scripture says, he will not allow us to be tested beyond our strength. It doesn't say how close he'll get you to that point, though. In Psalm 6, God had stretched David to his breaking point. Now, we don't know the whole cultural context of why he penned Psalm 6, but we do know that uh, David was tested several times throughout his life in his reign to his breaking point. He does mention in verse 7 the foes. 
He says, my foes. And he talks about the workers of evil in verse 8. And he, so his enemies were clearly rising up against him. They were challenging him in some way. But we don't know the specific situation. But we do know that David was almost overcome by anguish. But hear this, church. Testing, God's testing, always ends with victory. Weeping may last for the night, but what comes in the morning? Joy. Joy comes in the morning. Again, we don't know how long the day, the night is though, right? <laughs> but it comes. And after God's discipline that sometimes feels so heavy, after his testing, it yields the peaceful fruits of righteousness, according to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 11. So what we see in Psalm 6 is that David's plea leads to David's victory. And that's the pattern that all of us as Christians, as followers of Christ, should follow. It is, it is our pattern under God's testing as we endure his maturing. So with that, would you read with me Psalm chapter 6? It says, O Lord, Rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In shield, who can give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with weeping. My eyes waste away of grief. It grows weak because of my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are with us in our trials. We thank you, O Lord, that you don't leave us. But there are times where we do cry out like David as well. How long, O Lord, will this last? But Father, I pray that you're gracious to us as we go to your word and we hear your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot in this verse. So we're going to walk back through it, break it down verse by verse. We're going to spend the majority of our time in verses 1 to 7 and then end with the last three verses. But the first thing we see in verses 1 to 7 is something that I have titled David's Plea. And I've broken this chapter up into two parts, David's Plea and David's Victory. So verse 1 says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. We should feel right at home with David in these verses. David's words here, oftentimes when we go under God's discipline, it feels harsh to us. And what we see David is doing is he's wrestling with this reality of the harshness of God's testing. This discipline feels harsh, and it feels like God is angry with him. I know if I've been there, I've felt that way towards God. And I'm sure you have felt that as well. Are you angry with me, God? Why are you doing this? But that's a felt reality. That's a felt reality where you believe something to be true that is not true. But we'll get to that in just a moment. When you read this passage in Hebrew, which is sometimes important to do, uh, the, the passage puts a word order in place for us. And that word order that we see is that David is putting all the emphasis in these verses on God's wrath. 
And that's important to note because David is not asking God to stop correcting or training him. This is what we often do as Western thinkers. We go right to God and we ask him to end the trial. Get it out. I don't want to suffer anymore, God. Get it away from me. And in doing so, we fail to ask God to show us, what are you teaching me, God? What are you maturing in me, God? What are you exposing in me? What are you trying to remove from me? What are you trying to do? What is the purpose of this? We don't ask those questions too much. Lord, I don't want to suffer. Get it out of here. Is there a med for that? Can I take something for that? Get rid of this. This is what we often do. But that is not what David is doing. He is trying, he understands the importance of God's correcting and testing. A wise man or a wise woman uh, uh, welcomes God's instruction. Only a fool would say, God, don't correct me. Don't instruct me. Don't discipline me. So David is not asking God to stop correcting. Then what is he asking God to do? Well, remember what I said about felt reality. David feels as if God is angry with him. And he is asking God not to treat him like the wicked who are under his judgment. He is asking God not to discipline him in the heat of his anger because this, because this is how it feels to David. David's saying, by all means, correct me, God. By all means, discipline me, Lord, but not out of anger. And the prophet Jeremiah, this isn't, this isn't uh, unique to David. The prophet Jeremiah prays this as well in Jeremiah 10, 24. He says, correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Right? David is like Jeremiah here. He was wilting under God's discipline. He was wilting under God's training. And it was so painful that David started to fear, have you turned against me, O God? Are you not for me anymore? I think we've all been there before. We've all asked that question once or twice in our life, and if you're like me, maybe five or six times in your life. God, what did I do to deserve this? Why do you hate me? I'm the righteous one. I'm doing everything you're trying to do. Why do I look at the wicked and they seem to be fine? They keep buying the expensive combines and I keep fixing mine every week. What's going on? Why do the wicked thrive? Why do you hate me? Why are you testing me like this? We've all said something along those lines. I've never said the combine one personally, but maybe you have. And if you're here and you're a parent, you know the difference between discipline that is done out of anger and discipline that is still hard, that is still serious, that is still uh, intense, but is self-controlled and loving. You know the difference. Every parent knows the difference between the two. And let me tell you, every kid knows the difference between the two as well. And just a little side note on this. I'll go on a one bunny trail. Parents, it's better for you to just walk away, get your own heart right with the Lord, calm down, and then deal with your kid's behavior. I've had to go back to Levi many, many times and apologize because I've disciplined him very fast out of anger. Some of you parents need to hear this. It's okay to apologize to your kids. That's not going to make you look weak in their eyes. That's going to make them actually see you stronger and respect you. And it's going to teach them how to own their mistakes. If they don't learn it from you, who are they going to learn it from? We need to not discipline out of anger. And when we do, we need to recognize it's a sin. It doesn't change the fact that your kid needs to be 
discipline. I'm not saying that. If anything, this next generation needs a little bit more discipline, right? We need some discipline. But as an adult who the Lord has entrusted these kids to you, you and I must make sure that our response to our kids are teaching them how to be honorable to the Lord and not the other way around. Amen? Okay, let's get back to our verses. Verses, uh, as you read verse 1, you may be wondering, well, what brought about God's rebuke to David? What brought about God's discipline? And, and some have suggested that David implies that he has sinned. This psalm, Psalm 6, was actually one of the pentennial psalms or the psalms of confession that the early church used. This psalm, along with six others, would be read at, at, on Ash Wednesday to begin the season of repentance during Lent. But God's rebuke in verse 1 does not necessarily mean that David has sinned. The, world's, the, the word rebuke story can also imply teaching a hard life lesson. I've, rebu- I've been rebuked a handful of times in my life. It's not that you're necessarily doing something bad. It's not that your heart's intent is to hurt someone, but they're rebuking you because you're not doing something properly. Any job you work at, you're going to get rebuked along the way. Because if you do it wrong, the job's either not going to be done right, or you could cause harm to yourself. Right? So you need to be rebuked, or you need to be corrected. So it's not always a bad thing. It's a good thing, because if we're not corrected, we never learn. So I don't think that David has sin, because if we read Psalm 6 carefully, David doesn't confess any sin anywhere, nor does he repent anywhere. I actually read Psalm 6 in light of Job. I think David is like Job in this, in this psalm, a man who is suffering, although in this moment he is righteous. In fact, God sometimes puts his children through testing, through the ringer, not because they have sinned, but because he loves them and wants them to grow. This principle is all over the Bible. Wise King Solomon gave this advice to his son in Proverbs. He says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be wary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son, sorry, as a father, the son in whom he delights. If you look at this verse in Proverbs, you notice that he uses the exact root words that David uses in Psalm 6, which is rebuke and discipline. And if you read all the wisdom literature in the Bible, you're going to see those two words together a lot. So yes, I don't, don't hear me wrong. Difficulty can be in your life because of sin. God may be trying to expose a hidden area in your life that you are refusing to surrender to the Lord. But on the flip side of that, discipline, correction, can also be in your life because God sees how you're living, he sees the good you're doing, he is pleased with how you're making his name known, and he disciplines you for that. Well, what does that mean, Aaron? That doesn't make sense. Well, first and foremost, we have to rid our mind that discipline is a negative word. Discipline is not a negative word. We've just made it into something that only happens when you do something bad. But that's not the case. Actually, athletes understand this very well. Right? If, if, if an athlete's performing well, they've scored the game-winning goal for the last four games, the coach doesn't take them to the bench and say, hey, by the way, take the next five practices off. You're doing really well. Clearly, you don't need this. That's not what he does. He pushes them harder. Because every coach knows his team. 
And every coach knows where their breaking point is. And he's pushing them so they can be better athletes, perform higher and harder, and win more games. You take him out of practice, he's going to hurt himself. She's going to hurt herself if, they don't, if they're not in there exercising. And as you mature in Christ, and as you become more like him, you will constantly be in the gym. Sorry, you can't cancel that membership. <laughs> Training yourself, disciplining your life, keeping a careful guard on your soul. Because sin is invasive, church. Sin is sneaky, and it's crouching at all of our doorsteps, and we can't let up. We can't get distracted. We have to keep fighting the good fight. We have to keep running the race with endurance. It's no coincidence that the authors of the Bible sprinkle in throughout all of its pages physical analogies to explain what the spiritual life is like. Because it truly is a race. It truly takes endurance. And we must be disciplined to run well. But here's the deal. Amid that discipline... We have a sneaky, sneaky enemy. We looked at that last week. And he will try to plant lies into your mind that during this discipline that God is not pleased with you. That he's disciplining you because he's angry with you. That he's mad at you. That he hates you. That you're a no good scum. God already knew that. That's why he had to die for you. Really? That's why he had to send his son. We must fight against this lie. Because he will stick it in our minds. Because at times, some testings, they're hard, but we get through them. And other times, they're heavy. Heavy. And it feels like God has it out for you. But David doesn't turn away from God's discipline. David knows there's a lesson here and he wants to learn it. But he pleads with God not to deal with him like the wicked. Don't deal with me like the wicked. I want to learn the lesson, but don't deal with me out of your anger. And instead of anger, David pleads for the grace of God. Look at verses 2 to 3. Oh, I don't have it, sorry. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also was greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? David is appealing to the grace of God. Notice he's not running from the God who is, he fears is angry with him. Like we tend to do, oh, God's mad at me. I better not talk to him for a week. He runs to the God. He appeals to him to be graceful towards him. Be graceful to me to God. Be favorable to me again. He appeals to God for healing the wounds that were afflicted on him during this uh, test, during this discipline. Notice in your Bible, look at your Bible, verses 1 and 2. Notice that in these two verses, three times does David appeal to the Lord. And those letters in your Bible should all be capital. Because he's appealing to the covenantal name of God, which is Yahweh. He's pulling upon the promises of God. He's calling, well, he can't say this on the God of David, but like we just sang. But he's appealing to his past faithfulness. This name reminds God's people that he is committed to them and to their salvation. What is David doing here? Why is he doing that? Why is he not using a word like Elohim or another word to describe God? Why is he using the personal, covenantal name of God? Because what he is doing is he is combating against those felt realities. He feels like God is angry with him. He feels like God is distant from him, but he knows 
Deep down, that's not true. Because God's name means that he is committed to me, to my salvation. He feels like God is out to get him, but he knows the name Yahweh. That means that God is for him and not against him. I heard this story once of a wise mom talking to her adult daughter. And this adult daughter comes home like they all do and complain to their moms. And they're complaining to their mom saying how hard life is. And this wise mom grabs three pots and she fills them with water and she puts them on the stove. And she brings them to boil. And then in one pot she puts carrots. And the next pot she puts eggs. And in the third pot she puts coffee. She lets those simmer for about 20 minutes. And then she turns off, she takes out the carrots, puts them in one bowl. She takes the egg, puts them in another, and she pours the coffee in two mugs. And her daughter says, well, what, what does this mean? Or sorry, she says, what, tell me what you see. And her daughter's kind of confused. Well, I see carrots, eggs, and coffee, mom. Like, what's the deal? <laughs> this is a weird lunch. And her mom says, feel the carrots. She feels the carrots, and of course, they're limp. Then the mother asks her to peel the egg. She cracks the egg on the table, takes off the shell, and it reveals a hard-boiled egg. And then finally, her mother hands her a cup of coffee. And the girl asks, well, what does this mean, Mom? And she says, all three of those objects face the same adversity. They all faced boiling water. And she says, which one will you be? Which one will you be when God brings trouble into your life? Will you go limp like the carrot? Will your heart harden like the egg? Or will you be like the coffee that releases its fragrance and flavor into the water around it? Which is the fragrance of faith. Church, I pose that same question to you. Which one are you? How do you respond when the hardships of life come against you? Do you harden? Do you go limp? Or do you release the fragrance of faith that lives inside of you into the situation around you? That's what we see David doing. David is releasing the fragrance of faith. He pled for grace from the very God who placed him in the boiling water. We see just how beautiful David's faith is when we understand just how troubled he is. The word languishing there in verse 2 has the sense of a plant that is wilting and withering. Its life is wasting away like every plant that enters the visitor's home. It's weird. They just all wilt and wither. It's like you have to water them or something. The word trouble is better translated as terrified. And that gives you a sense of just how David was feeling. His life, his life was panic and trembling. David was terrified under the hand of God that was on his life. Again, it seems like God is treating David like the enemy. And David is terrified physically. And his very soul, the very breath with him is even more terrified. David is scared senseless. Maybe you've been there. Your heart has been gripped by real terror because of the situations around you. Because of the trouble that God has allowed in your life. If you have, you're in good company. Because clearly we see David struggling with that. But also we see our Savior, Jesus Christ. When Jesus turned his face to walk towards the cross, he was gripped by horror on what God has set before him. And he echoed the words of Psalm 6. He says in John 12, 27, Now is my soul troubled. He's quoting Psalm 6 there. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. 
He's quoting bits of Psalm 6 intentionally because David's innermost torment points forward. It's a foreshadowing of the innermost torment of our Savior when he died for us so that we might be saved. I think we tend to have this false picture of Jesus as he walked this earth, that he just kind of floated through life, untouched, unscathed, unmoved by the world. But that would be denying the human part of Jesus. Jesus was truly God and truly man, 100% God, 100% man, and he endured anguish and agony under the will of the Father as he obeyed his will. And this should serve to us as a major comfort. Our Savior knows, church. Our Savior understands and he cares for us and he can pray for us intentionally before the Father as we too suffer as we are obedient to God's world or word in this wicked world. Jesus is the supreme example of what it means to suffer under the will of God. But then we see David continues his plea by calling on God to rescue him. In verse 4, he says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Now, the ESV, which I use, translates, uh, uh, uses, Turn, O Lord which there's nothing wrong with that if you kind of understand what's going on. But I prefer how other translations choose to translate it, which is return to me, O Lord. I prefer this because return to me makes what David's request, it makes his request clearer to us, the reader. Because the prophets in the Old Testament would often use the word turn as a call of repentance towards sin, to follow God again. Now, David is obviously not asking God to turn from sin, because God cannot sin, but, he is, he, but to return to him, or in David's human thinking, to change his actions against him. As I stated earlier, it felt like God was set against David, that God was angry with David, that he was disciplining him in his wrath. And David, in his mind, he wants God to dramatically change course and to be for him, to return to him and not be against him, to end this trial and to heal him. David needed his God, who promised not to leave him, who promised to be with him in these trials. But he felt like he was gone. He felt like he was against him. And maybe you have been there in your life. God, why are you doing this? Why are you allowing this? Why do you feel so far off and apathetic towards my pain? I need you to return to me again, O oh God. I need you to be gracious to me again, O oh God, to show me your love. Although God, Christian, is never set against you, because in Christ he is always for you, in many situations in our life, it can feel like God is angry with us. But we know that not to be true. And that is just part of a lament prayer. Part of a lament prayer is expressing to God how you feel. It feels like you're gone. And then the second part of a lament prayer is to call God to action. And this is what we say, see David doing here. David is calling God to action. And he's not commanding God. We can't command God, but we can call God to action just like David. And you may be wondering, okay, well, where did David get all this confidence from? Where did he get this confidence to call and call upon God to action? And it's because David knew God's steadfast love. And steadfast love is an interesting Hebrew word that is pronounced hased. And hased, you can't, you can't translate into just one word. It takes two. 
That's why you see it steadfast love or faithful love. And his said carries a very great weight. And it doesn't translate well into English all the time. And this word, though, has a strong relational sense to it, as well as an emphasis on a prior bond or commitment. And you might be wondering, okay, well, what is that prior bond or commitment? Well, remember back to verses 2 and 3 how David uses the personal name of God. That is the prior bond or commitment. The covenant that God established with his name, his name Yahweh, that he made with his people. So in context of Yahweh's said towards his people, you can translate it as Yahweh's steadfast love, his relational love, and expresses his covenant commitment to his people, that he's faithful to it, that he's steadfast in it. It's his relational love, his faithful love, and it's connected to the very fiber of who God is and how he treats his people. Meaning for David, And for you today who are in Christ, you can be sure of God's faithfulness towards us. Not because of how faithful you are, but because of who he is in his steadfast love. If he is your God, you can count on him to be faithful to you. You can count on him to be loyal to you. Your friends may turn against you. Your family may leave you, but your God will always be faithful and loyal to you until the end when he calls you home and completes the call upon your life as he glorifies you. It's his very character. He doesn't change. God is love, and he is faithful in it towards his people. And David appeals for this rescue, for God to move again on the basis of God's covenant loyalty and his steadfast love. It's an amazing promise that we have as God's people. But then we see that David's plea with God to rescue him is based also not just upon his steadfast love, but upon his glory. It says in verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise? Now the word remembrance is more than just you uh, memorizing random facts and statistics that you can spew out at your next cocktail party. It's talking about worship. It's talking about remembering the things, the faithful things that God has done in your life. How will he be able to tell others? How will David, he's saying, how will I be able to tell others if I am dead? I want to tell others of the glorious things that you have done. How you're going to turn this situation around. This appeal is David's last-ditch effort, and I think it's one of his most powerful ones because God is passionate for his own fame and for his glory. As a holy God, he is perfectly and infinitely loves everything good, beautiful, and true. And he perfectly hates everything that is false, wicked, and evil. God is holy, and in and of himself, he is the most infinitely good, true, and most beautiful thing in the universe. So it just makes sense that God loves his own glory because he is the greatest one in the universe. And if God was to love anything else a little bit more than himself, just even for a microsecond, God would be committing idolatry. He would be committing sin, which is unthinkable. Since God rightly loves himself more than everything else, he is passionate for his glory. And we as men and women of faith, we should perfectly love everything good, perfect, and beautiful as well. Think about it. When something goes good in your life, 
When you're standing in all of the beautiful mountains, when you're on a boat on the lake and it's still and you're watching the sunset, when you hear a baby's laughter, when you try a project and it works out on the first try, it makes you feel good. And all those things should point your eyes to to the one true good and perfect one. Everything can point to worship. The most beautiful one in the universe. That is our God. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. And we behold him and he fills our hearts with joy. So God's passion for his own glory is not at odds with our good and our pleasure. In fact, we as humans, as we're designed, we are most satisfied when we see God most glorified. The best thing that God could do for either of us is that he would be passionate for his glory. For when I have him, when we have him, we have everything our hearts and souls desire. And we are filled with joy. So this is David's trump card. And verse 5 has a powerful perspective for us to hold on to when God stretches us. Lord, what I want most in this situation is for you to bring glory to yourself. Yeah, I want the pain to end. Don't hear me wrong. Yes, I want it to end. But please, yeah, I want you to rescue me. But save me so that I can tell others about how great and glorious you truly are. So your name can be glorified. Because at the end of the day, it's all about you, God. Whatever brings you the most ultimate glory and pleasure, then so be it. So be it. So that means you heal me. If that means you remove me from this situation, so be it. But if that means you keep me in this pain, if that means you don't heal me and I stay in my sickness, if that means I stay in this turmoil of this situation, and that will bring you most glory, then so be it. And that's a hard prayer, church. That's a very hard prayer. Look at verses 6 to 7. He says, I'm weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. David's at his breaking point. He is depressed and exhausted. And it's important that we just take a moment because it's a source of encouragement to us. That God's people go through many hardships in life and we're not alone in our pains and thoughts. God's servants are not immune from dark nights and deep valleys. I want you to hear this from me because I don't think the church has done well in this all the time. You are not less of a Christian because you're struggling. You're not. You are not less of a Christian because you're going through depressing bouts. You are not less of a Christian because you find yourself frequently in dark valleys. Many of God's people in the Bible have experienced depression and dark nights. And the same with many of God's great servants throughout church history. The great Charles Spurgeon, for example, on an unforgettable Sunday in 1866, he stunned his 5,000 listeners from the London's Metropolitan Tabernacle. He says, I am subject. I am the subject of depression, depression of spirit so fearful that I hope none of you ever get to such extremes of wretchedness as I go. Depression plagued, uh, not Sproul, uh, Spurgeon from the day he was born to the day he died. He struggled with immense clinical depression. Yet he was one of the greatest preachers that we have ever known. And his people couldn't understand that how the greatest, the prince of preachers, could struggle with depression. But he did, to the day he died. But I love the imagery of verse 6 and 7. Because I know that many of us 
Many of us drench our pillows with tears. And many of us know what it feels like to have our eyes burn from, from crying. And the word flood in verse 6 is a rare word meaning to swim. He is swimming in his tears. The New American Standard actually translates it as, I make my bed swim, and I love that. Because you can picture his agony. Many can picture because you too have made your bed swim from time to time. The darkness of David's night makes the sun rays all the more beautiful. After David's plea in 6, 1 to 7, we now close very quickly, I promise, with David's victory. As we go through these last verses very quickly, we see a change in David's heart, in his energy, in his command. The king is out of bed. The king is taking charge. He says in verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. David asserts his power as the anointed king from the Lord to purge his kingdom and to banish the wicked. Psalm 5, verse 5, the psalm before this, tells us that God hates all evildoers and that he will do away with the arrogant. And evildoers are just the people who have unrepented sin in their life. David responds in Psalm 6, 8, tells us that God is driving the wicked away, how he's doing it, by his king. David is the agent of God's will by banishing the wicked from his presence. And I mention this because it's significant as we look forward to Jesus. Because Jesus actually quotes these words from David in, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, one of the, great, the greatest sermon ever given. The great King Jesus will banish all the wicked in the last day. Look what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And here's where he quotes it. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus' shame and anguish on the cross is not the end of the story. After his agony of his soul, the risen Christ will judge the world and purge everyone who practices sin from his kingdom. David's banishment of wicked, of the wicked, points forward to the work of the greater son, the king, Jesus Christ. David's confidence and victory are in full of faith. Verses 9 to 10. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be greatly troubled, and they shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Notice, nothing seems to have changed for David. His situation didn't magically get better but one thing did change. He had confidence that God heard his cries. In church, you and I have that same confidence when we're in the dark nights of the soul, when we're in our trials, when we're in our testing, when we're in our pain, when it seems like the wicked world is raging around us, we know that God hears our tears. He hears our prayers. And we know by looking at the New Testament, if he hears us, he will answer us, amen? God is a God who hears. Your situation might not get better. I don't know. God does. But one thing you do know is it's not meaningless. God hears your prayers, and you can be confident in who he is, his steadfast love, his faithfulness, and his promises. And notice, too, the play on words in verse 10 that David does. He said at the beginning, he said that he was greatly troubled. 
And now he says about his enemies that they will be greatly troubled, or remember, better translated as horrified. Church, you have an enemy that wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. The devil doesn't want to tickle you. Don't mess around with him. He wants to kill, steal, and destroy you. But you know what comes for him? You can rest assured that he has already been defeated. That God has, the snake crusher from Genesis has come and crushed his head. He has been defeated. And he too, at the end, will be in the lake of fire, terrified by the wrath of God. The devil doesn't own hell. He doesn't run around inflicting punishment. God is pouring out his wrath on the wicked. He will be terrified by the wrath of God. Amen? That's your enemy being crushed by the snake crusher. So let me end by asking this question. Is God testing you? Is he stretching you? You might feel like that stainless steel rod that I begin with, that God is pulling you from both ends, and you're about to buckle. Cry out to God. Remember our example, David, today. His plea, his prayer led to victory. And the same is for you. Take comfort in Christ and keep your eyes on him, as as Hebrews says, therefore, since we are surrounded, By so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely it's sticky. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to who? Looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter of our faith. For who the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before God was you and me. Was mine and your salvation. Was our reconciliation between God and man. And Jesus looked at that and said this is worth it. I will suffer under the will of God so that you and I, so my faithful people in the, in the future and now can be saved. And we too look to Jesus, our joy that's set before us. And we endure the persecution. We endure the pain. We endure the trial. We endure the hardship. And we will overcome. Amen? Amen? Amen. We will overcome. Let's pray and then take communion. Father, I praise you and I thank you, O Lord, for that you are the great King of heaven. That the Bible is just one great massive story that has a thread that pulls from the beginning to the end. That we see from Genesis the promised coming Messiah who would crush the head of our enemy. And we see it fulfilled in Jesus that he has crushed his head although he was bruised. And Lord that you are coming again to reign in victory. That although we might suffer for now, although that we might go through trials now that are testing us, that are building us, that are, are producing endurance in us, we know that there is a day because you are the sovereign, mighty God that you will come and you will correct all evil. You will make all things good. You will make all things new and we will be at home with you in your presence at perfect peace. Father, we pray for you to send your son for him to come quickly. Lord, it's a hard, hard world. And yes, we're the light. Yes, we're the example. But Lord, we want to see you come. In Jesus' name, amen.